Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 580. Hey, Chris. Kyle, what are you doing here? I just was, you know, wandering through your stuff and figured I'd say hello. Why aren't you wearing pants? Don't worry about it. Okay, I'm not worried. Oh, yeah. What? Don't worry about it. Okay, stop. Oh, oh Katie, this is where Kyle starts getting <laughs> creepy. This is where we're going to discover this weird, un- seedy underbelly of Kyle Clark's life. Well, I mean, that's for sure true, but I mean, we don't have to advertise the America. You just advertised it. <laughs> You're your own freak commercial. Coming this fall, Kyle's dark side. <laughs> Coming this fall, Kyle. Oh, I can't wait for this fall now. <laughs> this episode is Spike Ferriston, uh, who is has written on... A lot of really amazing shows, uh, and he's a super funny guy. Like what? I mean, what is he, what, some kind of writer for Seinfeld or something? I mean, it's like Seinfeld, and maybe he wrote the Soup Nazi episode. <laughs> That's insane. But anyway, uh, Spike, Spike uh, has a new show called Car Matchmaker, which premieres October 14th on the Esquire Network, and basically, he he's a super huge car nerd guy, and so he is like a matchmaker, but for a, a person's personality and the type of car that they should have, and, and he covers these really great vintage cars, and uh, and he's a, he's a good guy, and, and really, really, really uh, funny, and so watch Car Matchmaker, October 14th, The Esquire Network, but listen now, the Nerds Podcast number 580, with Spike Ferriston. Yeah. Are you pooping now? I am. Okay. Why? Well, because I can see just know we all need to escape because we're now in danger. So you're, no, but you're not. It's not even that general. You're, oh, cow, man! I didn't. I didn't bring my alien diaper. <laughs> now entering nerdist.com. Welcome. Thank you. We already started. Hey, come oh, on in. There she you can come is. in. Hi, Ina. Hey, how's it going? No, no, we know. just, we have just not down. even really just started. <laughs> Welcome. And I apologize uh, if I look tired. Uh, yesterday was my first kind of Emmys thing. Wow. And it was, uh, yours too? Yeah, oh, you, no, I wouldn't, I would be surprised. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And so I, I went, uh, I went to a couple of the after things. 
knowing that I had to work this morning, we're like, well, but when am I gonna? You know, like, maybe I'll never be back here. So why not? I feel like I. You must have been a million times. I've been. Yeah, I'm zero for eight right now. I'm, I don't really go anymore. It's what I remember is nothing to eat and having to sneak in protein bars and things like that. You know what? There was nothing to eat, and then when I got. Well, this is about to sound like a big luxury problem. When I got off the red carpet, uh, it took so long to get through that by the time that like they were seating people mm-hmm. and they shut down the snack bar and they wouldn't give out water. I'm right? Like, yeah. But I just got off the. Yeah, it's mm. suffering. It's yeah. a little bit of Abu Ghraib, the Emmys. I mean, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. We're the real heroes here. I think <laughs> having are. to go through a red carpet <laughs> in a tuxedo. Oh, red Can't move carpets. that chair out of the way. It's weird. It's it's like having it. Yeah, just move it into the corner. There, okay, good. Uh, it, but it was uh, it was really surreal, but fun. And what did you do exactly? I presented an award. Oh, you did? Yeah. And how did that feel? It well, I, there was a modern amount of pants shitting for the whole day leading up to it, <laughs> and then uh, and then I I called um, I, I talked to Colbert the night before. Because anyone in my mind that could do the correspondence dinner, mm-hmm. especially the way that he did it, mm-hmm. is fearless. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I don't know, I'm nervous and I don't know what, this is like a much different, I've done a million award shows, but not like this. Mm-hmm. And he just said, hey, just, you know, like, remember, just play to the camera and don't worry about the audience. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. I've done television. <laughs> and so, and I just forgot, I just forgot. And, his, and, and I, he had to remind me how to do it. Uh-huh. And I did when I went out. I was super nervous, but then I just kind of was like, okay, I'm just going to do this. And I did not look at anyone in the audience. And I just played to the camera. And I think it was fine. So anyway, that was my long tail. (laughs) That was my long tail. And then what happens for you after the Emmys? Governor's Ball? Emmy Uh, parties? um, I think it's straight to the Oscars. Oh, you mean last (laughs) night. Was it enjoyable at all? I'm trying to remember anything enjoyable about Emmy experiences I've had other than pictures with my buddies out front. Once I drove a yellow um, Cadillac Fleetwood 73 (laughs) with all the Letterman writers in it to the Emmys. That was really fun. Fantastic. Yeah, hanging out of the sunroof, drinking Jack Daniels. Oh, no, it was, you know, it's it's still this, this, it's very exciting to me still because. Who did you meet? A lot of people. A lot of people. I met uh, uh, Lena Headey and. the, uh, who else? Um, uh, Lauren Michaels and I don't know. It was oh, wow. just a whole. It was like, oh, you, I recognize you, I recognize <laughs> you. But then in that environment, everyone's pretty chill because they're all in the same. You're in the club. Well, it's just that everyone's kind of vulnerable because everyone's kind of nervous and stressed mm-hmm. because they have to go out and present. Or mm-hmm. and so everyone was very. It was very cool. But uh, I mean, the the stuff that you've worked on is. Um, I mean, like. I could just talk to you for an hour about Space Ghost. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about Space Ghost. I mean, you... But people uh, people know everything, right? People know everything. I don't know. Most people don't know who I am. Even after the talk show? Even after the talk show. I'm just a guy that kind of looks like you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Seth Myers, <laughs> Just like without the glasses. There's definitely there's like guy. a white guy... <laughs> Creature mold, right? Where it's like plop, yeah, skinny guys with spiky hair, kind of unshaven beards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely who else would be in that club? But Joel McHale would be in (laughs) that club. Well, yeah, he's a he's a good looking guy. He is a good, a little different than us. We're spindly, wiry guys. He's also very tall. Joel's very tall. Joel's a giant. Yes, yes, we're different. He's a gentle giant. In fact, people probably think we're all the same guy. 
with just different glasses and hair. You know, we're we're the same guy. Well, now now that he's super now he's super famous, but Aaron Paul would be in that. Oh yeah, uh, Matt Matt Bellamy <laughs> from Muse would be in that as well. There are the... only about 158 human prototypes. <laughs> I think we're like 68s. We're number 68s. That's what we are. Whatever the Detroit of humanity is, <laughs> right. like we rolled out of that There's factory that line. No, look at meerkats. I mean, it's the same with people. <laughs> we're 68s. Yeah, we should yeah. have our own little club inspected by, and then we get like a little inspected mm-hmm. by stickers. On hey, the I thought you were great on Bill Maher the other night. Oh, thank you very much. I love that show. That's a, It's one of my favorite late night shows. Have you done it? Have not done it. I don't want to do it. I don't like getting close to things I really like because it's going to ruin the experience. <laughs> oh, you don't want too much of the behind the scenes. I don't want too much of behind the scenes. Like Howard Stern or, or that show. I really love those shows. And I feel like if I go on, I'm going to lose. I'll just work against myself in my own head. You think and so? And no matter, even if I kill it, I'm going to kill myself after. Like, I won't sleep for two days and I go, oh, the way I looked or what I said. Why did I do it that way? And then I I won't be able to watch the show anymore. Yeah, okay. I totally understand that. Because I'll tune in. But we were watching you, my wife and I, and we thought you were really funny. Oh, thank you. My wife didn't know who you were, but asked, who's that guy? He's really (laughs) funny. He looks like you. <laughs> he looks like you. <laughs> you guys. Uh, He's a 68. <laughs> we are the 68. Six- <laughs> Someone should just meme that. It's basically just <laughs> just like just do a grid mm-hmm. of different model of like different different uh, model types. Yeah. And for we'd sure. be the 68 and then we'd be like the 9 the 9 square. Uh, it's an grid. upgrade from where I showed up last which was on um, men who look like old lesbians.com <laughs> <laughs> with Dana Carr. RV and Al Great Franken Tumblr. and Todd Rundgren and <laughs> <laughs> I would rather be on the 68 than that site to be honest with you. Oh, I love I love a good Todd Rundgren reference. <laughs> the, the something anything album is fucking fantastic. Mm-hmm. Do you like are you a Rundgren fan? No. Okay, well, I just like the reference. It's a good reference but it's also a phenomenal album. And you're cheating yourself. You're just cheating yourself. <laughs> After this. Did you <laughs> You're not going to rush right after this and go no. do that. Um, what? Uh, so you did you you started as a, a as a page or you started as a, just a, at SNL as an intern. I was an intern on uh, at NBC. Mm-hmm. I was the guy who was getting uh, Bud Talls and cheeseburgers for the graphics guy who handled Saturday Night Live and Letterman, who was on uh, late night at that by that point. And then you. So at what point did you start? Tossing jokes. Harassing yeah. Dennis Miller to do jokes. I think when I, um, shortly after I was hired to be the receptionist on Saturday Night Live, and I, my office, my desk was right in front of Dennis's uh, office, and all I did was read newspapers and answer phones and toss jokes behind me, and he started doing them. And before you know it, people were asking who wrote that joke, and it was that kid Spike at the desk, and you know I managed to leverage that into a writing job on... Night music with David Sanborn. I don't know if you remember that short-lived Star Trek music show. Oh my God, I don't know if I remember this was, that. Show. Or, it was Sunday night. Michelob presents Sunday night. It was a Lauren Michaels music show that Jules Holland and David Sanborn hosted, and well, we had Todd Rundgren on it. Anything in the <laughs> anything in the Michelob comedy brand. <laughs> it was an incredible show. Hal Wilner, who's still the music supervisor for SNL, was doing the uh, music supervising for it, and so we'd have like the Chili Peppers and Miles Davis on stage together and Clapton. It was an incredible show. Um, sadly, I don't think you'll see it because of music clearances again. But um, oh, it must be on YouTube somewhere. I think there are pieces of it and snippets here and there. Um, 
But I got to meet so many incredible, like Miles Davis, you know. You don't expect to meet Miles Davis when you get into show business. No, no, no. And there's a certain type of person that's so kind of ingrained in our uh, cultural DNA Mm -hmm. that when you see them in person, you're like, you're a hologram, right? You're not an actual actual person. I couldn't just poke you. Well, when I met him, Marcus Miller brought me in the room because I used to shoot little short films that would run as bumpers in the middle of the show. You know, that's how crazy the show was. They were just like, here's this camcorder, shoot things and we'll put it on. Yeah. Go shoot something with Miles Davis. (laughs) You know, I'm a former bartender intern guy. Going to meet Miles Davis. I walk into the room, you know, I go to shake hands and I shake it like a white guy, which immediately <laughs> throws off Miles Davis. I wasn't going to do the fake kind of black guy. Right. And, and he was upset by it. And he went, uh, what the? And Marcus Miller starts laughing. And then he dropped his trumpet and it fell right on the bell and the, the trumpet kind of bent. And he just looked at me, and Marcus said, You better leave right now. <laughs> oh, shit. I said, What? He goes, Just walk out. And I walked out, and Marcus came out, and he goes, okay, we're going to, I want you to come back in the room and pretend nothing that happened happened, and shake his hand the way you want to shake it, the way he wants you to shake it, I mean. And I walked back in, reenacted the moment. This time, he had a new trumpet and didn't drop it. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it was it's pure insanity. Every moment, it was excellent. I was like, this is, could be the most awesome moment of my life. And he just pretended like nothing ever happened. Nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. And then I took him into a room with a camera and lined him up, and I said, all I want you to say is, I've had a sore throat for 33 years. (laughs) So I framed him up, and he went, I've had a sore throat for 33 years. And then I would put the uh, little night music bumper on it, and that was our little short film for the week. I like to think that maybe uh, Miles Davis is uh, some type of an android or something, and then they basically <laughs> powered him down when you walked out of the room, and then just tweaked a little programming, and then and then launched, relaunched yeah. him. They rebooted him. He, I mean, all of that was. I went to music school, so I'm spinning out of Berkeley, Berkeley right? College of Music, yeah. meeting meeting these guys and hanging out with them, and you know, losing my mind. You know, what what instrument did you were you going to play? I was uh, uh, going to score movies. I was going to write songs. I mean, really, I thought for sure I'd end up being a school teacher, you know, teaching music. And if I'm lucky, I'll be composing, uh, like, elevator music, Muzak, because <laughs> Muzak was based in Boston. That's about as high as I aimed at that point. Um, and it wasn't until I started watching early Letterman shows that I realized um, there's a place for me, network television. In fact, it was... Uh, Dave one night was throwing light bulbs um, off a, a tower and smashing them, and I had just been thrown out of the dorms for doing the same thing. The oh, it's fine when Dave does it, <laughs> and I but just, not at Berkeley School of Music. No, at Berkeley School of Music. It's just a weird coincidence, but I thought, well, that guy is getting paid by NBC to do what I just got kicked out of the dorms for. <laughs> this place, network television, must be where I should go. And I started setting on my sights on getting on that show no matter what, even though that show was in New York and I was in Boston. And uh, no kidding, like a month later, we hire a new cocktail waitress at the place I'm tending bar, and she walks in with a Letterman varsity jacket. And I say, where do you get that? She goes, I was dating the graphics guy for David Letterman. I said, can you get me an internship? She said, yeah, he's still in love with me. He'll do anything I want. (laughs) (laughs) And a minute later, you know... um, Flying to uh, New York on Big Apple Air for 29 bucks, sleeping to, on friends' floors. To, to go get your uh, sexually transmitted employment. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you know, and then eventually just drop out of school and just go, this is where I'm supposed to be. Oh, wow. And so you, 
the whole time you were there, were you, you, you must have always had your eye on, okay, now I'm in this department, but that's where I want to... It was basically... Were you just basically, like, leapfrogging? I was... No, I was just in... I, I felt like I was in a movie. I was just in... I, this is a show, and Saturday Night Live is a show I grew up watching, so I, I read the first Saturday Night Live book, and I'm like, shit, there's Al Franken. Oh, my God, there's the Lauren Michael. You know, I'm... Senator the, Al Franken. <laughs> Senator Al Franken. Um... You know, just meeting these people I'd only read about and, and and finding out that there's this career called comedy writer. And these guys get paid to be lunatics and to just write funny things. Didn't even know that existed or I would have been, you know, uh, going to college for it if I could have. What year was this? Were you working in Letterman? Jeez. Uh, Letterman, I worked 1990 to 95. Was so he enjoying it at that point? Uh, I got two NBC years in there, yeah, yeah. and uh, the NBC years were terrific and uh, a lot of fun. Then when we went to CBS, he, he, you know, he owned a lot more of the show and the fooling around stuff. I mean, we were driving golf balls in the hallway and just wrecking Thirty Rock and having a good time, <laughs> and you know, uh, dropping water bottles down elevator shafts and <laughs> listening to them explode, you know, every day. Um, and then we went to Ed Sullivan. You know, we had to. Kind of grow up a little, class bit. it up a little bit, and then so class started, it up. That's where yeah. he started wearing suit, full suits, uh, and sh- and sh- and fancy shoes. Did he? I don't know. I oh, wasn't yeah, paying yeah, attention yeah. to the clothes. No, no. Well, be- but but the clothes really defined the tone. Mm-hmm. Like the original show was mm-hmm. like he was the guy that wore the bl- the the kind of sport coat and the sneakers, right? And then when he went to CBS, it was like full suit, yeah. Which to me was a very it was very much a tonal shift, yeah. In okay, we're grown ups now, right? You know, now now we're in <laughs> we're prime time late night. This is grown ups. <laughs> Kids will watch. You know, like this isn't just for. So that it that was a, that was a very interesting tonal shift. But I, I'm but I'm also fascinated that. That uh, you had any kind of a connection with Dennis Miller because he, um, uh, I don't know, he just uh, seems like he was. Uh, I mean, uh, not not a super nice guy back at, back in those days. Really? From well, from my 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 experience with him back then was he was re- super nice guy. Well, then okay, super so nice guy. You were maybe on. The- I mean, I'm nobody walking in and answering phones and saying, "Hey, do you, would you read some of these jokes?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure, babe. Yeah, whatever you want." See, that makes me very happy. You know, and and then doing them. I because I I my. My experience with him was at the 1995 Video Music Awards, and I was working at MTV at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was such a dick. Oh my <laughs> god, he was such a dick. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and and it crushed me because it, yeah. you know his black and white special, I think, is one of the best. Stand-up what did specials. he do that? Well, why was he such a dick? Um, he was there, and he was uh, my friend Rick Overton was writing with him. Mm-hmm. For, and it's funny to think about the VMAs. It's funny to think about Dennis Miller hosting the VMAs. <laughs> Those two things could not seem more incongruous. Right, right. And uh, and he was there, and I was uh, he he kind of he kind of got mad at me, or he 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 kind of laid into me because I was telling I was and I wasn't really talking to him. I was telling Rick Overton the story about um, Courtney Love's sound check. And she just had this meltdown because she wanted to start rehearsing, but they hadn't plugged in all the instruments yet. She was like, why don't you guys play? And they're like, the instruments aren't plugged in yet. And she was like, shut up, Eric. You don't even know how to play guitar. Like, she literally said that. And so she just kind of had this weird meltdown. But it was obvious that it's like, yeah, but everyone's like, they're tr- just give it a second and then everything mm-hmm. will be plugged in. So I was telling Rick the story and he was like, Jesus Christ, man. She's totally... You know, her thing worked. You're talking about her. Like, he laid into me for, like, retelling the story. In other words, like, you're giving her attention. But it was right. Like, but he, it was really like, it felt like I was being bitten. And it really hurt because I was like, oh, I'm, so- <laughs> I'm sorry. 
comedy hero. You know, I mean, I, I watched that. I watched that special so many times. Yeah, and it was. Such Do you an still imp- watch it now? Or is I it haven't all watched over? it. In, no. I haven't watched it in a long time. Because his- don't you think everybody has their moments? Like I had an awful moment with Bill Murray that still bothers me to this day. An innocent question asked at a urinal. And he just went off on me, and and still to this day, I believe hates my guts. Oh, uh, but uh, hates my guts. No, I think he probably still thinks about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Well, he, I, I'm telling you, it followed me for years. Well, okay. it was such a simple little, and it's. I don't even think it's a mistake. You tell me if this is a mistake. Okay, all right. this is 1994, mm-hmm. and uh, it comes around to the writers, uh, head writer, I think, Robert says, uh, uh, "Bill Murray's looking for an idea to do tonight. Anybody have any ideas?" And I pitched out this whole idea where um, Bill, from the guest chair, looks out into the audience right at the beginning of his uh, his slot as a guest, and sees a pretty girl, and says, "Excuse me, Dave. I that woman is just so distractingly beautiful. I have to." And he just gets up and he walks out of the guest chair. <laughs> and then throughout the show, they get engaged. They get married. Oh, that's fantastic. They come back in Act 5. We've got our, our second <laughs> child here. Then things go wrong. There's a divorce and a second wife. It's a funny kind Which, of... by the way, is also very much in the Bill Murray voice. <laughs> very much. <clears throat> and, and, and not a big deal that he decides to do it and then changes his mind at the last minute, does somebody else's idea. I didn't care. But I find myself at Saturday Night Live party that Saturday night in the bathroom next to Bill Murray, who I'd been sitting with, I believe, me and my brother. And so, you know, he sits with crew. I was sitting with yeah. him and chatting, having a nice time. And I look over, making small talk and say, hey, how come you didn't do that, uh, that idea of mine? And he goes, uh, I don't have to fucking tell you that. And he's immediately hostile. And before I can back off and go, hey, I was just, he was just joking around, just making small talk. He just starts unloading on me. And he runs out of the bathroom, goes up to my brother, and he goes, your brother's a fucking asshole. Did you know that? He's a fucking asshole. Just hostile. Oh, oh that hurt. He, yeah, That's like nightmare. That's nightmare. I had this nightmare right? that Bill Murray told me I was an it. Who I love. Yeah. I love this guy. I think he's fantastic. So I'm like, whatever. You know, I fucked up. I shouldn't have said anything to the guy. You know, he's, he, he's a bit of a landmine here and there. A couple years later, he's uh, hosting Yespies, and a friend of mine is good friends with him. Is going up to see him. He's like, "Come on, we're going to go hang with Bill Murray." And I'm like, Are "You sure? <laughs> Does he know <laughs> that I'm coming? Because you might want to just mention it's your friend Spike from Letterman." She goes, "Yeah, he's not going to have a problem. I could just mention it before I go up there, so I don't have to get bitten twice, as you said." Yeah. She goes upstairs. Calls down. She goes, "Yeah, you can't come up." He oh shit! So now it's so I got smoked. So now, you know, I'm on the outs with one of my big heroes. Oh, that's a way more intense story it's than intense mine. It's intense and awful, isn't I it? I could have just caught Dennis Miller in a bad moment. We've all, and still I think about Bill Murray like I think of any of us. We all have these bad moments. I wonder what... Someone has a bad Chris Hardwick moment. Oh. Probably one of these two people in the room right here. Oh, not these fucking assholes. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, well, because, because um, you know, throughout the course of your day... You'll have a lot of different emotional tones throughout mm-hmm. the day, and if someone, if someone just happens to catch you, and you don't even you're not even thinking because your your head is in something else, mm-hmm. and then that's their experience. That all of a sudden 
sort of that sort of supplants the it, that becomes your avatar in their head <laughs> <laughs> the rage avatar and to you, you might be like oh i don't even know what that what oh i don't know but yeah. the, but the bill murray story sounds like it's definitely awful. you he loses it and i'm just nervous i'm just nervous and i don't know and, and i shouldn't i've learned now not to talk to men at urinals now not to not to get too <laughs> psych deep into this but I wonder if it had anything to do. Maybe it was like a flashback of SNL, or like the days yeah, when, yeah. when, and what might have been like super competitive or super. Mm-hmm. Why didn't it, you might have? That's right. You might have just hit like a fucking a crazy backdoor button. I think it's a generational writing thing. Yeah. Because in that moment, I don't care. I'm making small talk. I'm nervous. I just want to strike up a little conversation with a guy I really admire. Yeah. Yet. You're right. I've said something generationally, which I've bumped up against before. (laughs) No, he starts yelling at me in the bathroom. It's just like, Jesus. And 94 is is post-Groundhog Day, Bill Murray. So he really is, like, he's still as... I mean, like, now he's ascended to... (laughs) Like like mythological status, yeah. And by the you way, can just he, summon him. He, and he has just done turns up. another one of my bits. When we first went to CBS, he I had him uh, writing something on Dave's desk. Oh, the idea was um, we're over at CBS. No one's going to know who you are, Dave. You've only been on NBC. These CBS people have no clue who you are. I'm going to fix that right now. And he spray paints the word Dave yeah, on the front right, of his desk. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and he does it, you know. So it's not like I cared at that. I'd, I had written a couple of Bill Murray pieces before. Oh, my God. But jeez. Yeah. Well, if he's ever on the podcast, I'm going to be like, you know, oh, recently talked please. to <laughs> There was just a real and or fake Facebook Bill Murray going around that we all thought might be real. And I get banned from that. So even the <laughs> fake <laughs> Bill Murray who may have been real. He might have just decided in that me. moment, you know what? I need a nemesis <laughs> and I'm just going to pick this guy and I'm just going to funnel all of my... well. It's awful because I like so him. Sorry, I like him. That would I, I would I would be heartbroken. I mean, I'm 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 amazed that you recovered from that. Well, because... I will try to patch things up with you and Dennis if you can help okay, me with. I Bill appreciate Martin. that. I, re- <laughs> I think Dennis would probably be like, "What the fuck are you talking about, man? I don't even fucking. What do you mean?" Uh, but uh, the 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 training grounds of SNL and Letterman, and mm-hmm. then Seinfeld, which I mean. Three completely different types of rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, is, the, is there one that you prefer in particular? Letterman probably sounds like a beat. They were all, they're all wonderful. They're all like comedy college. Letterman was really lots of reps. That's five years, you know, five, you know, six pages of writing you're generating every day. It's really a great workout. You get really sharp and good, but you're honing in on, <clears throat> we used to say Dave's um, comedic sensibility for the show was like, uh, if all of comedy was a football field, what Dave wanted was like one square inch that you would just <laughs> mine down to China and it would evolve slowly. You know, but that's what working on any late night show is. That's not just Dave. It's just like we talk about the day's events and then we talk about just these subjects. So that, you know, that's quite a workout where you get really good at uh, a certain style of writing. And then, you know, Letterman, I mean, Seinfeld is a very different experience, um, but liberating in, in a different way in that Larry and Jerry only wanted you to come in and, and tell stories that happen to you. You know, in general, they would say, we don't really want you to write something. We want you to come in and tell us what happened to you at the cocktail party last night that you thought was odd. And what you wanted to say or wanted to do. So it's almost like a, it almost kind of sounds like um, 
the altern- like an alternative comedy show where there was an alternative comedy show that I first the first time I watched alternative comedy was in 1992 a show called Uncabaret mm-hmm. and Uncab the whole thing was you can't do jokes you just have to tell stories right. about what happened right. but it should feel organic right and uh, now you know I go back and I see some of the episodes that I wrote and they're all things that happen to me you know you wrote the soup nazi episode right the soup nazi episode the little kicks all the stories inside of them the muffin tops they're all little stories that happened to me while i lived in new york some of them in la the talking uh the talking stomach i mean it's it's kind of i i wonder why i wonder why more shows because it Part of the reason why I think that show felt so different <laughs> is because it was so unique and specific and didn't right. – it was not sit- – Follow that thought, that question you were just – you wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. Well, networks – I know, but – Every then, time but, you try to go near stuff like that, they're so confused. But it's so – I mean, but like how can you not look at like that – like look at Louis's show. Louis, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's – For sure. You know, but I, I always say that uh, that <clears throat> a network would look at Louis's show – and they would not because it's very difficult to put this on a on a on a uh, to make this a data point and mm-hmm. to say because um, it's not quanti- it's it's not really quantifiable it's not really tangible in the sense where you go oh you just kind of let a guy be funny in the way that he's funny and, and organic to how he is uh, or the, but but a network look at Louis show and go oh okay so what America wants is um, a guy who's like forty six <laughs> with a red with like a ginger goatee right. like they would they would look at all the wrong right you know and not like no no you just let him tell stories and like be funny the way he's funny they don't that's very well, they, that's yeah. risky well you know the story right you, we all yeah. know the story that they didn't have anything to do with it really, yeah he just said, give for, me the money and I'll make it and no just... more to the point he said wire me the money <laughs> <laughs> he said wire it and I will deliver the show but nothing you get zero. And I think uh, he told me the closest they got to it was somebody from FX came and had coffee with him just to have coffee with him. And he showed him a joke or something. <laughs> He's like, you going to show me the casting? No. you going to show me the budget? Nope. I'm showing you nothing. And then we get Louis' great show. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say I don't, you know, not everyone could pull that off. Um, but Louis couldn't even pull it off. I mean, Louis, I've, I've been watching Louis make his shows for an awful long time and his short films. And what's so interesting to me is he just, every time he would make something that didn't quite work or, or the HBO show, people would say, including me, just go broader. Go, don't go in the direction you're headed. Go back, you know, in a CBS direction and, and take out the dirty stuff and maybe just talk about the kids because your observations are so amazing. You could build a show around it. And he said, uh, I'm going completely the opposite way. You know, I'm just going to drill down and get more and more pure with my comedy. And that's what this FX show is. You know, he finally just got rid of everything except for him, you know, what he wanted to do and his sensibility. And that's why it works. But it's really unexpected, like from where I saw him years ago when we were writing on Letterman together. But there's something that's, I mean, you know, when you, when you kind of uh, peel back the layers and you look at that show or you look, look at Seinfeld, I think part of the reason why they resonate with people because there is there's something incredibly authentic about mm-hmm. it where, you, where you, you don't feel like they're trying to sell me jokes <laughs> like a car salesman. Like there's right. something that feels like these are real human experiences <clears throat> right. and the comedy is coming out of this very authentic place and that's i think that's what makes them work as opposed to the complete opposite that sort of that sort of cbs style show where it's like oh these people are good joke writers you know like right like a golden girl style which i fucking i adore that show <laughs> it's a good joke with solid jokes and strong characters right. but obviously like 
it's all completely fabricated. Well, it's funny. We used to say, and it's, it still is this way for me, it's, you, you, if you start with a funny story, you can hang jokes on any story you want. Um, if you're a network that goes, oh, well, let's do a girlfriend story. He's dating two girls. He doesn't know which one. You can still hang funny jokes on that. Right. Where Seinfeld or Curb does it differently is they start with a funny story. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know I didn't buy the blazer. I return. I bought the blazer out of spite, and now I want to return. You know, stupid <laughs> shit that you can also hang funny jokes on. But the spine, the story, is different and funny by itself. It's not a tired premise we've seen a thousand times. Right. And that you're right. That is what Smith. Even though like there's shows like Silicon Valley that are killing it right now. They're so funny. Show. Yeah. Yeah, because it's 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 hanging jokes on real stories as opposed to hanging jokes to disguise. Yeah, and I'm I'm noticing. I know Alec Berg is working on the show as a former Seinfeld writer. I've seen a couple things that make me you know encourage that that I think that's a definitely a a Seinfeld story. You you remember one of the characters was. uh, there was a story about Steven Spielberg f- uh, floating around back in the day about how he uh, discovered Burger King and how he sent his assistant, who we all knew, out for all the things on the Burger King menu <laughs> delivered to his desk yeah. to try this discovery I've yeah. made, Burger King. Yeah. And I saw that beat in the show. They did that beat in the show, <laughs> and did, yeah. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that's got to be Berg and it's got to be Spielberg. Yeah, oh, that's got to be what that is, and that's Seinfeldian right there. You know, um, George Costanza's answering machine is the same thing. Do you remember that? I, I was sitting with Jeff Schaefer when he said, Check out my friend's answering machine, and she had that message on her phone, and we were playing it for weeks and just <laughs> laughing in the Seinfeld writer's room. And then we went, Hey, why aren't we putting this in the show? So uh, I think Schaefer did that story for George. You know, believe it or not, I'm not on the phone. That, that one, remember? We shot the whole episode, had it edited. It was about to air, and Schaefer called the girl and said, watch Seinfeld tonight, and just hung up. <laughs> Didn't say who it was, just left the message on her machine. So she got to experience that, that outing. That's in a very grand way. She must have felt honored to be represented know. in such. We never talked. She to her can again. probably sue now, but <laughs> <laughs> well, she'd probably have to sue. Uh, who was it? Who was? Oh, who, they have who no did, money. Was it Glenn Larson or Stephen? Who did the? Uh, yeah, who did Greatest American Hero? Good question. Oh, it was. Uh, it wasn't Bochco. It was. Uh, Don, anyway, it's really not relevant at all. But I, <laughs> I did like the Greatest American Hero. It was a fun show. Um, but, uh, well, what, what was, where did, where did Space Ghost, like, how did you, how Space did... Ghost was a little detour when I was writing, um, Letterman. My brother had written an episode. I didn't know what it was, but he, he pointed it out to me and it just blew me away with how absurd it was and how it seemed like it was, a anything goes kind of writing situation. Whatever you want, just write whatever you want and make it weird. And that really appealed to me. I, I think the first time I saw Space Ghost was, I must, obviously mid nineties, and I was working at MTV at the time, and somehow I tracked down a number for their production office, and I just left this long, rambly message. I'm like, my name's Chris Hardwick. I work at MTV. I fucking love your show so much. If there's anything I can ever do on this, like, I pitched myself to them on their yeah. voicemail in, like, 96, maybe, mm-hmm. 95, 96, and, um, because I was so, so in love with it. And, it and, and, and to me, that was kind of the beginning of that, – that, that sort of ushered in the era of – very self-aware meta mm-hmm. type of comedy, you know, like because we had to cycle through the '70s and the '80s to then be able to start mm-hmm. uh, 
basically satirizing all of it. And that that sort of ushered in that era. You know, that's what me. attracted me to Letterman in the beginning. I mean, some of those bits that made absolutely no sense, like, you know... I remember there was a viewer mail letter um, where somebody asked Dave, what would life be like without the U.S. Constitution? And, geez, Paul, I don't know. What would life? And then, you know, they're touching the chins and they gliss. And then it was just Dave and Paul tied to a stake while a giant rat in a purple gown whipped them (laughs) for like 45 seconds. You know, just that. And, you know, I'm in my dorm room smoking pot going, this is the most incredible. There's nothing like it on TV. And it's it was like a little secret that we're all watching. It's like, holy shit, guys, come in and look at this. Or or the tribute to the troops. Do you remember this one? A tribute to our U.S. Marines. How about we have a nice tribute to the U.S. Marines right now? And a marching band comes out. They're all in uniform through the blue doors. And for some reason, there's a giant hot dog marching with them like that. <laughs> you know, and it goes two minutes, and they, they, they sing some song. At the end, everybody applauds. And Dave goes, Paul, a very touching tribute for our forces, but the, uh, the, the hot dog. I don't understand the hot dog. And Paul goes, well, geez, Dave, I thought the hot dog was your idea. And then <laughs> the hot dog starts ask, acting suspicious and backing out of the studio. <laughs> and, hey, hold on, hot dog. And then the hot dog runs and security chases him. You know, those, those are the things that drove me nuts. Like, I have to work on that show. And, and I saw those same moments in Space Ghost, but in spades. You know, they were just everywhere, you know. Um, and, and I, you know, again, I was like you. Whatever you guys want. Want. Can I just write one of these? You don't even have to pay me. I just want to be a part of it in some small way. So, what's your um, how? How are you uh, when you when you have to write eight pages of jokes a day, or you have to like oh I have to go pitch to Larry David now? And I'm, I'm gonna talk. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you push through it if you don't if you're stuck? Um, you know, just uh, a deadline always helps. If if like right now I don't have a deadline, I'm putting together a half hour pitch, and there's no deadline, so it's really hard to work. <laughs> but at some point, that producer's going to call me up and go, "Hey, you know, can you come in and pitch in a couple of days?" And that's where uh, I'll get work done, actual work done. When did the <clears throat> the, the Fox show was two was oh six to oh nine? Is yeah, right? yeah, we did three seasons over on Fox, and you know they blew it. As usual. <laughs> what, so did you, did you pitch a show to them or did they come to you? I really wanted to get back. I missed writing Late Night. And uh, I believe at the time I was talking to Norm MacDonald about doing a late night show. I met with him over Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I said, I, you more than anybody uh, should be hosting their own late night show. This is maybe 2005. And I said, why don't we put together a pitch? And he's like, well, what's the pitch? And he's like, you hosting a late night show is the pitch. <laughs> I don't get it. Like, what's the point of view? Your point of view is the point you of view. You've like seen you. these shows, Norm. Eh, yeah, sounds good, but we need an idea. <laughs> a late night with Norm McDonald. He just, you know, right over his head. And uh, in, I got frustrated with it because I had I'd written up some, you know, bits, like two or three pages of things that I thought were missing from late night. Um, and then decided to take him out on my own. Called up CAA and said, look, I want to try this. You know, Conan obviously has done well. Why don't we uh, go in and see if we can sell it? And uh, walked into Fox. Just, you know, it's one of those things that just happens. One of those magical moments. There's so much pain in this business. It's There's so much incredible pain. Then there are these incredible moments that happen that surprise you. Where we walk in on the same day with the right production company that had just sold something great to Fox. And they're just so happy. Yeah, we'll take that too. We make a pilot, and suddenly they're like, you know, I remember uh, we made it for Mike Darnell. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know Mike. Um, 
see um, the crew over there at Fox TV. Um, and, you know, I, I, we shot it. I think we shot on the best damn sports set. Mm-hmm. That's what we did. We shot one pilot. You know, I felt like, you know, it's insane. You've done this job before. Mm-hmm. It's completely insane, though. I'm not a comedian at that point. I'm just a guy, you know, a writer hopping behind a desk. And, you know, I, I do, I think about a 20-minute presentation that, that I think does well. Jason Bateman does it. Seinfeld walks out. I don't know how I got those guys, but they, they were part of it. And then I didn't hear anything for three weeks, and I was driving down Little Santa Monica in Beverly Hills, and the phone rang, and it was Darnell and Gail Berman, who was the president of the Fox at the time, and they're like, we love this. You're going right on the air. You know? And I almost crashed into a mailbox. <laughs> you know, this is not the call you usually get. No. <clears throat> I, was, I had one wheel up on the sidewalk right by K-Chocolate. You know where K-Chocolate <laughs> is? Just stunned that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just like, I'm not hearing what I'm hearing. And we're going to pick up the show for a year. Congratulations. And then they hang up, and I don't, you know, and I'm driving home. I was, in a, I was in a Volkswagen Passat, I remember. For some reason, I remember that car. Just going, and I call my wife. I'm like, the most fucked up thing just <laughs> You know that stupid little presentation thing? Because I'm a writer at that point. I'm not, and I don't expect this to work out, but they really loved what Conan was doing, and they sure. thought this is the way to build the next late-night franchise, and they thought, I'm the guy, you know. And I'm laying in bed, dying of excitement and fear at that moment, like, you know, freaking out. Um... So we have a, uh, a, a big lunch scheduled the next day with the Fox people. Let's go celebrate. They're ordering 46 episodes. <laughs> and then two weeks later, Gail Berman leaves Fox. Uh. Two weeks later. And now everything is on hold. The red blinking button on the phone just beeping. No, you're fine. You're fine. Everything's going to be fine. God, but it's so- not fine. You can tell it's not fine. Uh. And they hire Peter Ligori, and Peter watches it, and he goes, I really like this, but just let's take this slow. I think we want to shoot some more pilots. And Oh, my God. Another year goes by, and we shoot uh, six pilots and uh, eventually get Peter Chernin on board. And, you know, the thing, the thing takes off and launches, you know, but, but, but more under the radar than it had been six before. Six pilots. Yeah, we shot, you know... Six pilots all together, let's say. I, I believe we shot two or three hours that night, just had multiple guests and chopped them up into six pilots. But it was just one big shoot. And then uh, with, the, with the idea being we were going to cut it into a sizzle, and then you know, what, it ended up at the upfronts, which I didn't expect. But um, God, that's that, that, that feeling of never... It, is a, it, it really does train you to never feel safe. Like well, You're always just like, okay, okay, all right. It trains you to just not tell anybody. Yeah. Because your show's picked up. You haven't read about it yet. You have to read about stuff first. That's, that's the new rule. Once you read about it, everything's fine. Until you read about it, keep your mouth shut. So now I'm just a guy walking around Hollywood going, yeah, no, I'm going to be the Fox Late Night guy. And they're like, yeah, right. You know, nobody... No, they said. Gail said. <laughs> <They> said. <laughs> she said. I know. And, well, she's uh, not there anymore. No, I know that. But, uh, you know, but she did. I mean, we are. It's crazy. And it, it's really the most, one of the most exciting experiences of my life. And, um, you know, not long after, I went to an affiliate meeting in January. January, where they said, we just want you to meet the affiliates in Las Vegas. And on Tuesday morning, they picked the show up on the uh, uh, anniversary of Johnny Carson's death, I remember. Oh, <laughs> January. <laughs> um, but, you know, hugely exciting. And then, you know, we were off kind of building this little late night franchise with, you know, no money and next to no support. And, you know, go ahead. You, you guys have Saturday night. Have some fun and see if you can make some noise. And so they, what's, it's, what's interesting is that they gave it three years. 
And then, like, you'd think... Well, like, we what? were doing really well. I mean, we were very viral. Hulu was new, and we were we had the top, uh, you know, before viral content was viral content, which is everywhere now. You know, we were we were we uh, had higher hit counts than um, Tina Fey and Sarah Palin and the family. You know, we were putting out some really great stuff and becoming a very viral show that was making noise. And, you know, ro- clips would roll the next day on The View and things. So we were doing our job. For a show that I think was budgeted at three hundred grand an episode, which is ridiculous for a late night show, and with no promotion, you know, not a single billboard, not a single magazine ad, and maybe one or two network promos in three years, mm-hmm. you know. So we were we were doing well, and uh, it it came down to them not wanting a late night franchise, you know, them not having the space because in syndication they had all of these shows and they didn't quite know what to do with us. Yeah, that is uh, that that that. I think what I think most people probably don't understand about how television works is that you know there's obviously different departments in one department that mm-hmm. handles like time slots first of like like reruns and then another will handle like original programming, and in a lot of cases, you know they just start doing math and they go, oh well, you know if they're getting the same numbers, we can get X amount of dollars for this syndicated show, but we're not producing, you know, right. like we're not. Well, in this particular case, as you probably know, I don't know if you deal with affiliates on Comedy Central. It's these small businesses around the country with guys running them. They have three or four stations in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So the president of the network can say one thing, but he's then got to go now to the different affiliates and convince them. Right. They're like, well, why? What do you mean the Spike show? Right. You know, Gilligan's Island is doing great. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need this guy. You You don't understand. (laughs) They built stuff out of coconuts. (laughs) No, I know what the show is. We don't, you They've wanna... almost found them. They're going to get off the island soon. I, I always feel like, though, it's it's. I mean, you know, like why not invest in something that could be a big, a you know, like really give a channel an identity as a because syndication doesn't necessarily identify, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but a, like a face, like personality. That's... Yeah, it definitely it definitely would have helped. But you know, um, all things considered. We are the longest-running late-night show in Fox history. <laughs> we did do an excellent job. I'm very proud of the work we did there and, and very happy with what we created. Did you immediately want to take the show somewhere else, or were you just, by the time it was there's, done, were you, you just know, done with it? It's, no, I did. It, there's just nowhere to go at that point. NBC was very happy with what they had going on. CBS was, you know, where do you go? What do you yeah. do at that point? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just retreated. It was a, it was a rough year. It was, I think I got canceled about two weeks after my dad died, so I had that one-two punch, not to bring everybody down, but... No, 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 no. You know, there's not much fight in me left at that point, and and I'm just, you know, we had just had a baby, and I was just like, I'm just going to be a dad for a year and chill out and, you know, right, so... Yeah, I had the I had the opposite. I had it. I mean, my my dad died last year too. So I sorry to hear. I, no, no, of course. So I know that. Uh, I I know I know that I know that pain, and I also know where other stuff happens. And you're like, ah, well, <laughs> this just isn't as bad as that. So you know, I no, guess this, it's okay. This was a one-two punch, and it was less about the show and more about the provider anxiety. So the sequence of events is: I have new baby. Father dies a month later. Show gets canceled. So it's like bang, you know. Now, but it's too bad you weren't moving at the same time, <laughs> so you could really getting divorced. Hit, so you could hit see every what I could take. Major, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, it, you know, here I am. I'm fine. 
Yeah, you're fine when your late night show gets canceled, folks, and your father dies in the same way. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. You'll, You'll be fine. You'll be here with Chris. It'll all be <laughs> just sitting fine. Here and we'll be talking about it at the same time. <laughs> did uh, we? Did, well, did that do anything to you uh, writing wise, or did you did you kind of did you sink into comedy at all to get to deal with it, or did you have to put comedy aside for a while? No. It uh, comedy is always the same. It's work. It's fun. It's a privilege to get to do it. And uh, I think the only thing I really did was just kind of retreat into just my friends and family a little more. And uh, but I think that happens normally when you have kids, anyways. You know, sure. you're just around that stuff. And not making this business so important is definitely a relief. You know, it is. A, that, that's a perfect. That's a perfect way to describe it. It is a relief because so much of your young life, when you're pursuing stuff, it is. They're the most important calls that you get. Yes. And it's the most important, oh, and this is the biggest, oh, this is going to change yes. everything. And, you know, if you really stop to think about, like, <clears throat> but what is it that you actually want? You know what I mean? Like, people, <laughs> I think most people wouldn't really, they're like, well, I don't know. I just want. Well, if work is your whole life and this is your work, show business, yeah. you are in for an insane ride. <laughs> it is such a roller coaster. It's a yo-yo. It's so up and down and it's vicious and it's excellent. It is. It's, it's professional racing is really what it is. Mm -hmm. You can win the race and be drinking the champagne and kissing the girl or you can hit the wall and explode and just burn in front of everybody. Yeah. You know, and there are very few people that can do it and come out of it not really feeling angry about it. Right. You know, longer than a day, let's say. I don't know how long it takes you to cycle through your pain, but... It's, it, well, I, 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 I was able to condense it to, like, a day. <laughs> it's usually you know? 24 hours, right? Yeah, like And it's like, hours. all right, let's try something yeah, else. Here we go. Like, you know what it is? <laughs> it's like a mild food poisoning. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> it just gets through my system. That's and right. Then, there's diarrhea. Yeah. And, and there's diarrhea, pain. You know, and and then, then you're fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the floor crying, like, grabbing my stomach. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then a day later, I'm like, all right, I think, I'm, right. I think uh, you know, I'll, I'll try a taco today. You're calloused. Yeah. No more baby skin. Once That's the right. baby skin goes away, you're fine. Yeah. Give me the raw meat. What do you got? I can take it. Like then it just becomes that. Mm -hmm. But it, but it, but I think it's a, uh, you know, it is it is it is dangerous. It's a dangerous because if that is the only thing that you have or you care about, then it really it's boy, it's such a it's so hard, especially in this business, not to throw your self esteem into all the external things. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like work. Or mm -hmm. whatever else, and uh, don't believe any of it. That's the safest space. Yeah, don't well, believe the hype, the bads. Just don't. Just walk through it like Cary Grant. Just smile. Hello, darling. That's a oh, beautiful it's going to day, be isn't fine. it? Oh, <laughs> don't worry about that. Oh, my show got canceled. <laughs> oh, sad that oh, bugger. Really? Well, let's go have tea. Oh, Dad passed away. Drat. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like my cigarette? <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> Cary Grant theory. Well, it's and also you were also really close to some of the biggest names in comedy as well, and must have seen. Like, did you notice? Who any, is that? I wonder. I what? Who am I close to? No, you. I mean, well, Seinfeld or Letterman or yeah. SNL or like a, any of. Oh, that. seeing, yeah, yeah, working with them, sure. See, see, but but did you see any person like stuff from them? Like, did you see their personalities evolve, or did you see them? get weird or did you see them no they all care they all care like we do you know they go through the ringer <laughs> it matters as much as we pretend it doesn't it does right you know? yeah well but i think jerry's probably the most well-adjusted uh guy i've ever worked with in show business just really lets it roll off works harder than anybody else and smiles his way through it well i guess that's the, the point is that if you i mean i i, I always say this that 
you know, if whether you're goal oriented or process oriented, and I think people who are process oriented fare a lot better mm-hmm. because goal oriented people can get disappointed a lot because if you try to make a thing and then it falls oh, down, yeah. you're like, God damn it. But the guys, <laughs> the guys who really like the process are like, okay, well, I'll just start yeah. another process. Oh, you have to be open to different directions for sure because you're, not, you're never going to know what direction you're going in. If you want to achieve this thing, I have to win an Oscar, right. you're going to be very disappointed. It's but if you, if you put yourself into an environment where something can happen, you might win you know, the Oscar for best wardrobe guy or something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, it, it, you, never, you can't predict your direction. You kind of have to take your opportunities as they come, and they're odd. They can come in weird directions. I think it's okay to have a goal like, hey, it'd be nice to win an Oscar. But I think the real part of that is, but what I'm really going to do is just work as hard as I can to do the best work that I can possibly do Mm -hmm. and try to enjoy that. And then if you sort of, you know, if that's kind of in the back of your mind, you know, I think you can sort of get led in that direction. But ultimately... You know, you should be focusing on the work and not the fucking... Right. Because that one moment also must be very um, unsatisfying in the sense that then you get it. And then a second <laughs> later, you're like, I'm falling! <laughs> what do I have to... It's like, it's like the end of Princess Bride where he's like, I guess I'm not in the revenge business anymore. Right. Like, what do, you, what do you do like, mm-hmm. when you finally... It's a perfect segue for this new show, actually. Because I created this new show because I, I wanted to create a perfect day of work for myself. Uh-huh. And it's uh, it, the show's called Car Matchmaker. We're gonna be debuting on uh, Esquire Network, Excellent. which is a network. It's not a magazine anymore. It's, no, no, it's a network. Well, I know all about Esquire because Esquire almost took over G Four, almost. And then now G Four is just some weird dead satellite station <laughs> that only runs reruns the show that That's I used to do. After you Lipsy. and Olivia Munn left, <laughs> I mean, was there G Four after that? Of course there was. Well, really, th- yeah. But, I mean, right. it, that, that that channel had nothing to do with me leaving. That that channel had to do with the fact that there was some high level corporate pissing match between mm-hmm. DirecTV and Comcast oh, that, right. that had nothing to do with G4. I think it had to do with something like carriage rights, for uh, carriage uh, fees for the Golf Channel. But there is a G4 still, There's right? There's still a G4, but they're not producing any programming, but they discovered that just by rerunning, like, they're literally rerunning X-Play, which is breaking video game news from three years ago. So <laughs> you can hear about the Assassin's Creed that came out that year, and it's still getting the same numbers that it got oh, back no. then. And so they're just leaving there. Right. But, so Esquire took over what was the Style Channel. Style Channel. Yeah. And the Style Channel it came back too, didn't they? Oh, it did? Yeah, I think they did. Isn't there a Style Channel? There's a Style Channel, so they didn't really take you over anyone. You can cut our heads off, but They just took over Channel there. 235 on DirecTV. Oh, That's the good. simplest way of thinking about it. Good. So and, uh, how's the show been uh, working with the Esquire? It's been great. We just we, we, we getting back to what we were talking about. What I wanted, you know, I'm a car nut as well, like a car nerd, I guess, to keep in uh, theme with the nerdist here. Yes, and a comedy nerd at the same time. And I've you know worked for Letterman and Seinfeld, who are both car and comedy guys themselves. And uh, not surprisingly, um, when I last year I was thinking, what do I want to try next? I thought if I could create a comedy car show, a show where I go to work, I drive cars, talk about cars and be funny, I would do that. And uh, I had been in contact with uh, Oprah Winfrey's former producer, Ellen Rakuten, and we were pinging around ideas. And she said, you know, you're so good with finding people cars. And I'd given her some advice, which she did not take and she regretted. And she said, why don't we do like a car matchmaking thing? And I went, boy, that's a great hook. For a show. I don't know what the show is. Neither of us knew what the show would be, but Car Matchmaker is just a perfect 
way to sell a show. Like I could go in and did go in and just said car matchmaker, and they went, "We want it." <laughs> what is it? I don't know yet. Uh, well, let's talk but later. I'm going to match guys with cars. We want it right now, and you know, we sold the show just like that in the room. So. You know, from there, what we developed was just a simple idea for guys, because Esquire Network is a guys network, and it's, you know, smart, uh, non-Donald Sterling types, I guess is the best way <laughs> to describe, you know, the Esquire man. And um, It's a simple idea. It's guys who don't know what to get for cars come to me. I hang out with them. I give them an experience a dealership wouldn't give them, and then pick three cars that'll work perfectly in their life, and in the end, they pick one. Just a really simple format that I can then do kind of late night comedy in the guy and myself going down to a dealership and fucking around with the, with the yeah. dealer or you know I just did an episode with my brother who's the cue card guy for Saturday Night Live who bought a convertible to commute into New York so it's a front wheel drive car that not surprisingly he can't drive in the snow <laughs> so we drove out to East Hampton and had lunch with Jerry Seinfeld who schooled him on all wheel drive and weather in Manhattan you know, and that becomes a funny four-minute remote you would see in a late-night show. And then, you know, he comes back, and I picked out three all-wheel drive cars, and he picks one and buys it. So I'm going to pitch a car Tinder, where <laughs> you basically can just find a car, and then you can just go get in it, side of it and for 30 sex? minutes. <laughs> no, you just, Wait, you just get in the car. car? No, what you are just you talking get in, about? You just get inside the car for 30 minutes, and then you leave it. Car Tinder. And then that's it. Yeah. yeah. You just swipe through cars, and then, and then that's it. That's not bad. <laughs> no, it's bad. <laughs> It could be a sketch. That could be a sketch in the show. Um, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm. I like. I like pretty cars, but I don't understand. Like, I wouldn't know. Like, ah, this has got one of them uh, Hemi's inside. Like, I don't know any of that stuff. All of that stuff is so boring, isn't it? All of all of those details. There's plenty of guys doing that stuff. That's not what what I do on the show. I I mostly talk about the way a car looks and what it says to the world. You yeah. know, like clothes make the man, so does the car. And yeah. there are lots of guys, maybe like you, maybe not. I don't know what you drive. Who just like, oh, it doesn't matter what I drive, and and it does. The world is judging you. <laughs> and if you have a girlfriend, she's quietly judging you. And 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 lots of people panic when it comes time to lease this car and they don't know what to get and they make a mistake. And I really believe at any price point, you can get a car that's cool, that kind of works in your life at whatever age you're at. You mm-hmm. know, um, when I moved to L.A., I had 2000 bucks for a car. So I, I bought uh, an old Lincoln Cougar XR7 convertible that had just the rails for the roof, but no <laughs> canvas. But it was excellent. It was an excellent two years in that car. I loved it. The girls I was dating loved it. It kind of fit my personality at the time. And... Instead of going with like the Geo Metro or Dodge Neon, something small and goofy, you know, that would have not looked right driving onto a studio lot. And then you, then you could be, uh, and then uh, you could, when you're Lincoln, you could be a lawyer who's helping people <laughs> out of this car. What do you drive? What do I drive? Yeah, I have a, I have a, tw- a twenty thirteen Jaguar XKR. You do? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a cool car. And yeah. why did you pick Jaguar? Um, I don't know. I just didn't have one before. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I... <laughs> it's a funny, it's a funny brand no, for I'll tell to you, suddenly I'll... just jump into. I'll tell you why. You've got because, the British flag there too. Because, uh, oh yeah, I sure do. Made out of Daleks. It mm-hmm. couldn't be more British. Uh, um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I just like the lines on the car and I thought it was a very pretty, I just, I just loved the lines on the car and it was, it was one of the Bond cars. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I test drove it and it, and it, 
felt really it was really great. The technology inside the car was very bad. Like all the onboard technology is very bad. It's very old because they don't make a lot of them, so they just don't mm-hmm. update the. I think they refreshed that in the F Type that just came they out. They did. The F Type is an incredible car. It's a gore, it's a. Now, I didn't I don't know much about the brand at all, and I just drove. We did a special Jaguar episode where I drove that F Type convertible, and I lost my mind. It is so much fun, and everything about it is perfect. Oh, good. You, it, you, that's a car for you. You should definitely get that car. Oh, wow. I'm getting one next week for a week if you want to drive it. Oh, that'd be amazing. See, here's a dirt. This is an amazing thing that happens. Once you get your own car show, you become part of the car press, which I am car press technically, even though I can't really tell you how an engine works. <laughs> <laughs> you just call these guys up and they'll drop a car off at your house every week, whatever you want to drive. I need a uh, Bugatti. Uh, I need I have a, a- I'm in a G-Wagon right now. I've always wanted to drive one of those goofy Kardashian G-Wagons. Mm-hmm. So I called up Mercedes and they said, it'll be in your driveway in an hour. Wow. And I'm driving it. And so every week I get something new and interesting to drive from like Nissan Lease and Nissan GTRs to the latest Porsches and Fords, every, anything. So I've and I think I've driven just about every car in the world in the last four months. I was kind of interested to see the uh, the BMW i8. Are you yeah, driving that? They I were. Mean, we just saw those up they in Monterey. Come out yet, have they? They are. They're out. There there were a ton of them in Monterey for a Car Week. Um, in fact, at the hotel I was staying at, there were seven of them, like all lined oh, up there. Wow. And they have their own specific beautiful sound. They look like uh, they sort of look like Tron. Tron. To me. Tron. Tron. I'll tell you, the design is very polarizing, uh, gender wise. Men like them. Women really seem to hate them. <laughs> <laughs> really, well, not just don't like, just like I hate this. I, and I think it's that Tron look it could be but i also think that there's a certain type of car because i think the r8's a pretty car i mean the r8's an interesting looking car Mm -hmm. it's a completely impractical car and there's a certain type of car that i you know i think i was at the upper end of uh car the way i i go uh how much of a shithead like you can't take this car to the store like there are some cars where you can't just be like that that's not exactly true because that's the car that guys who don't want to drive Ferrari 458s buy. Right. They go, I don't want to be the shithead in the Ferrari 458. And I know a couple of guys out at Santa Monica Airport who got rid of them because they, got, they didn't like the raised eyebrow looks they were getting. Well, you, or sometimes getting flipped off on the highway for driving it. Yeah, so, but you, you can't just be like, if, like, to me in R8, you can't go, uh, I'm going to go pick up some uh, Golden Grams at the store. <laughs> <laughs> Like you that can, just feels you too, can. I don't know. Here's the thing: you're right and you're wrong. It depends. <laughs> it, it really depends on who you are. If I knew you a little better, and it sounds like I'm getting to know you, sure. you're not that guy. You're right. That's the two week supercar problem. Like yeah. after two weeks, you'll never drive it again. That's yeah. new Aston Martins were like that for me. I had it. Uh, Aston Martin dropped one off. We got James Bond themes. Put it in the DVD player, CD player, and we're just playing James Bond themes for the first night. A week later, I didn't want to drive it. It was just too much of a production to get. It in is. And out of. I, I te- just for fun. I I wasn't going to get it, but I test drove um, uh, a couple years ago. Now, what was the? It's sort of the successor to the DB9. The uh, DBS? No, it wasn't the DBS. The Vantage. The Vantage. No, no, not the Vantage. Uh, there was. It, there's, what was what, there's one other model. And I can't remember what it's. I can't remember what it's called. The Vanquish. The Vanquish. Yes. And it. Uh, it was just too. It was just. 
It's fun. I mean, it's so fun. But it's again, it's that kind of two week rule. Yeah, it's it like just, right after that, the the commercial, the Aston Martin commercial wears off in your head. Then you're right. You're going to Ralph's. You're getting charcoal briquettes. Yeah, and, and everything feels wrong. It just feels wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like you can't go to the gardening store. I'm like, oh, I got dirty. Now you the- can't. If you're like me, you go everywhere and everything. Like. I, I dropped my kids off at preschool in a race car. Like, in a, I'm not lying, a 1968 Porsche factory race car, because that's it's fun and it's crazy, or an old Land Rover. That's the thing, because I don't really care. I mean, to me, you know, when people are, like I'm driving someone around and like, oh my God, I don't want to hurt your car. I'm like, I don't fucking care. It's a car. Like, <laughs> right. I don't, I'm not getting it because I feel like it defines me. I just think it's a pretty, like mm-hmm. I happen to be at a point in my life where I can afford to have a, a swanky car and that may not always be the case. So I'm like, oh, why not? You know, yeah, for fun. Exactly. Why not? It's silly. You know, like you're not a guy that needs help. You're happy. You're I fine. Feel good. There yeah, are I... people who, unlike you, who are very unhappy or making really <laughs> stupid choices and really don't know what to do. There's grown men buying white Jaguars, for instance, with sure. tan interiors who get yeah. out and you you're like, what, do you, what is that? Are you going right. to get a necklace next and maybe a sundress and pumps? That doesn't look like who you are, you know? And, it, you know, those are the people who need the help the most. So, so sometimes we have interventions. There are lots of, like, uh, guys and husbands driving around in cars that their wives and girlfriends hate and are afraid to tell them. Right. You know, I'm really embarrassed to go out on date night with you in this car. You know, can we do something else? And it, I always, I always kind of think like oh maybe i'll just get like a fun just to like a bang around like utility vehicle totally just to like a, yes the weekend know. car is what you're just, talking just about just for something to yes. you know that, that is and what would that be i don't know um i don't know an old mini cooper would be cool for you something you so? really stupid and impractical yeah or silly <laughs> like a ford pinto <laughs> <laughs> something come really unexpected an amc eagle <laughs> an amc eagle that i could gremlin. i could make up like a tardis oh a gremlin like a, tardis, yeah, a like gremlin a tardis. would be great for you you know, you know something what, funny the cars that i really loved like a car that i really wanted when i was um when i got my first car um, you know, and I had to bite a budget of a few thousand dollars. Is I really wanted to find like an old BMW two thousand two, or like an old BM, or yeah, like a, like an gorgeous. old Mercedes, like one of the old diesel Mercedes. You know, like a, like an old seventies or a, like a late sixties Mercedes Motoring dot com. Yeah, oh, they're nice. in Glendale. Two Brooklyn hipstery guys restore Mercedes diesels. They're oh. Mercedes Motoring dot com. They're the coolest cars in the world they're all very affordable bmw 2002s are amazing too those are two fantastic choices the the, the 2002 was such a, a i mean just the it was such a pretty car yeah they still so are they're cool. collect they're very collectible and i right liked now. i liked them you know there was a certain amount of like sun fading on the paint where it just mm-hmm. sort of it wasn't it didn't look damaged but it just kind of looked uh, it just had a nice texture to it you know? I'm going to show you a car when we're done that you're going to love. All right. Absolutely love. It's right. lime green with a purple pinstripe. Oh, my God. I love it. Mercedes. You have, like, it's, you have I have a picture of it right here. Okay. I'm trying to liberate it from the Mercedes Motorings guys. I'll look at it. They won't sell it. When is your, um, when is your show? October 14th. Nice. I believe that's a Tuesday. That's a Tuesday, yeah. 9 o'clock. How did you know that's a Tuesday? Because uh, Talking Dead comes back on October 12th, not <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> I'm aware of things as they relate to me. We're going to be premiering two half-hour episodes and then airing throughout the fall on, on Esquire Network. And, and they've been fantastic to us, you know. Stayed out of the way and just let us make a fun car show. And I promise you, it's different than any car show you've watched. You're going to laugh. Digital, uh, is, are you, are you, are you uh, on Twitter? I'm on Twitter. 
at Spike Ferriston. Just in case people want to like, hey, here's my car. Or here's a, you know. Yeah, they can reach me at, at Spike Ferriston or uh, we're about to launch our site. I guess by the time this airs, our site, Spike's Cars, is going to be up cool. um, and up and running. So there, Facebook or at Spike Ferriston. Excellent. Happy to answer questions, talk cars, whatever you like. Just don't ask about the engines. <laughs> Just don't ask me what a carburetor is. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't understand a manifold. I don't, but I'll, I'll tell you, this show came about because that year when Ellen called me, I had sold or had a hand in selling 30 cars. Oh, my God. To a variety of uh, famous friends, friends of wives, my agent. You know, I, I'm just that sounding board, and I'm able to match people with cars that they end up loving. I mean, that, whatever that is, whatever that, if that's a talent or that's just being the resident car guy in your no, neighborhood. It I mean, it's, also, it's also interesting that this is, this is kind of what the entertainment industry has evolved into is where you get to say, like, you know, you get – I, when people when I'm talking to people about like what they want to do, I always kind of go like, well, write down like three or four things that you really like, and see if there's a mm-hmm. way to create some unique thing that is a mashup of all those things. Because the right. more the more spheres that you can add, the more specific mm-hmm. and the more unique your voice, you, like your thing is going to be. Yeah, and it really is just based upon the stuff that you actually give a shit about. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So you go, you know, for for me, you know, when I started Nerdist stuff, it was like, well. You know, I like all these. Uh, th- these are the spheres of things that I like. I have. Co- I'm, I'm a stand-up, and I also have hosting experience, and I love science and technology. And I can, if I, no one else has quite that. At least at that time, no one else I didn't think had quite that mm-hmm. collection of of uh, interests mm-hmm. and and experience. And so it sounds like you did. That, that, that was exactly what That's you did. That's exactly it. You, you know, we we've cycled through cars like crazy, my friends and I. And I pretty much I think I've driven everything at this point and owned cars. You know, I didn't grow up with money, so old. You know, American cars for six hundred bucks to new Ferraris and th- I I know what it's like to live with the cars, not just to acquire something. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, that supermarket analogy is spot on, perfect. It's a very insightful comment you made because a lot of people don't know that that about two weeks in you feel like an idiot <laughs> in the Ralph's parking lot or you don't depending on who you are right or or the front end scratches bumps because the clearance is too low so every t- you know you won't drive that car again but a lot of people don't know that yeah there are definitely weekend cars and there are definitely like day to day exactly cars. and uh, I really did for the first month that I had this this car I. I just I felt like a cock like and I felt like everyone was looking at me and I felt like but but again but but that but it's this sort is of, the you're going to be dead rule though this is another one of my rules you are going to be dead in twenty years yeah. maybe forty if you're lucky if, yeah. right nothing that happens here matters nothing <laughs> and people aren't even going to remember Obama it's just nothing none of it enjoy your life if you really want an experience get that thing sure don't worry about the kids college money get the thing <laughs> drive it if you do it right and it's old you'll make money on it and and have a few nice uh, weekends in it go for a few nice drives with your friends yeah you'll thank yourself that's all i do that's my the favorite part of my week is putting my kids in in the car and going for a cruise out to malibu and just driving through canyons and just you know having a nice afternoon with them or, or we just drove back some friends of mine from monterey we left pebble beach early all the blue bloods with the funny suits and just drove down the coast and drank coffee Oh, spent- father's passed away. <laughs> Let's hop into the car and go for a drive. Let's get the hell well, out of here. Because and- when I was in college, I worked at a. I went to UCLA and I worked at this country club, Bel Air mm-hmm. Country Club. And I 
Wow. Worked that all place over, in Beverly Hills there? It's in Bel Air, like up, up in the Bel and, and so I worked, I caddied and I worked in the bag room, I worked in the pro shop and I worked in, and, and, but ultimately, and I worked in the locker room, but then ultimately I settled for the last two years, I worked in the parking lot. So I sat in everything and one of my, fa- it's such a distinct smell, but one of my favorite smells is like the way that the leather cures in an old Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Like some of the people would come in in these like, you know, uh, late 70s SL Mercedes. And there's something about the way that the leather and it would get really um, glossy. Mm-hmm. And it just this the smell of it was so interesting. It was just like a I'm sure it smelled <laughs> different when it was new. Right. But there was an a like an aged leather smell in those cars yeah. that I absolutely every car has its own little smell. You're right. It doesn't yeah. quite matter if you get get in a 73 911 RS. They all kind of smell the same. And so I got to drive a lot of real. I just like park basically a lot of really interesting cars Mm -hmm. and carol shelby drove a shelby (laughs) wow that's cool yeah um but uh it was uh it was fun it was really fun so october 14th october 14th car matchmaker you will see me on tv it's good to see you man thanks for coming very nice to meet you meet you after yeah it is it's it's i'm always surprised that people that i feel like I can't believe I haven't met that person yet. <laughs> There's so much crossover that it just it seems odd. But anyway, that's how I felt about Jeff Goldblum. No, I'm, I'm just hey joking. man, it's chaos theory. <laughs> chaos. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.